Okay, here we are, February the 11th, uh, 2018, lecture discussion number 10 on the book of Joel. This is the book of Joel. It may not seem like it, but it is, in fact, the book of Joel. And we have returned, though we've been away for a week, um, not quite to the level of MacArthur to the Philippines, but uh, whether anybody has missed me uh, has yet to be established, or maybe it has. Anyway, when we last convened a couple of Sundays ago, the discussion had a multitude of unfinished, some even unstarted subjects to revisit. It's on the other side of the dry, uh, wholly dry erase reversible board here. And I'm leaving it there. I'm going to get to it eventually. That's Joel 3, as you know, primarily, but also some issues with regard to noadic animals. Noadic animals are very mysterious and need to be carefully considered. Hardly ever is the case that that is true. And as you know, whenever you deal with noadic animals, any foray into the gathering of those animals, they are brought by God to Noah. The first immediate question is, is where did they come from? Where did he find them? Where were they when he brought them? How did they get where they were? How long did it take them to get to Noah? What are all the questions with regard to the gathering of the noadic animals? And Noah, of course, is not the first one to have the animals brought to him by God. Who was the first one? Adam. So I have this incredible relationship between Noah and Adam, as you know. So I can begin to now look at the gathering of the animals to Noah and the gathering of the animals to Adam and determine it, what the similarities are with respect to the motive why God did it twice. So, But any time you get into that, it's going to lead you foraging into the origins of the dinosaur bone beds. If I can convey or get you interested in anything with regard, uh, it is to look up and list and spend time on these dinosaur bone beds that are all over the world. There are millions and millions of dinosaur permineralized bones. Permineral, permineralization, that process alone is fascinating. It takes pressure, it takes heat, it takes water, it takes uh, chemicals, it takes minerals in order to turn a bone structure into a stone replica, right? But anyway, these millions and millions of dinosaur permineralized bones are heaped Upon one another, they're homogenized. They are all mixed up, and there are, like I said, tens of millions of them, and there are bone beds on every continent. There's one in Alaska, as you know. And solving the processes that can account for these mysterious accumulations of, of fossils is always a valuable enterprise, and I would encourage you to spend a little time doing it. You won't be able to spend a little time. It'll consume you, I hope. And obviously, the immediate question is, why did God do this? Why were there so many animals drowned, in other words? Why water? Let me read it to you. Genesis 7:22. Here's what he says. 
I'll back up to Genesis 7:21. And all flesh died that moved on the earth. Notice that. Birds and cattle and beasts and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. And every man, all in whose nostrils was the breath of the spirit of life, all that was on the dry land died. What's the immediate response to that? Where there aren't animals anywhere else. What's, what's your choices? If everything on dry land died, first off, how much dry land was there? So an evaluation of what's called the antediluvian, cosmo- uh, not cosmology, ecology. But let's just ask this. Why is the earth covered in water? It's in Genesis 1, and now it's at Genesis 7. Why is it covered in water? Why water, I guess, is the probably definitive question. Did he have any other choices besides water? Answer is no, omniscience, right? But why is water the utilization that it is? Why is water utilized to kill in this case? What's the meaning of water? What's it mean in the Bible? Well, initially, it would seem that water provides a barrier to breath. And he actually says so in Genesis 7. Everything that had breath in its nostrils died. So what other systems of getting oxygen are there besides a nostril system? I, I can assimilate oxygen through an exoskeleton, right, in some creatures. Ask yourself, how does a cockroach get oxygen? Don't make it personal to me when you do that. Yes, go ahead. Uh, and what uh, translation do you have there? Wow, that surprises me. Because King James typically has the, the nephish kaya. So I'd have to, uh, you see me later and I'll see whether I'll compare that to Well, again, on the the image, I'm sorry, the emphasis is on the earth or on the ground. And so um, I'm asking what else is there? What else is there besides the earth or the ground? I have air, but I also have a long period of time. How long can you flap wings? What else do I have? Plus, I have all kinds of material falling. I have subterranean material going up and coming down. Uh, the tremendous amounts of, of uh, material being uh, uh, expelled into the earth system in the atmosphere. But back to why water? And again, water provides a barrier to breath, and, it, and it all, the interference to the breathing system, obviously, is what it does. And water immersion results in suffocation. So I have death by suffocation, the removing of the breathing uh, procedure, I guess, for lack of a better term. So why is suffocation the method that God uses, the one he effects here? He Does he have other choices? The answer again, no. That's always a trick question because God is omniscient. 
His omniscience brings him to the correct decision every time. Why is this the correct decision? Would we have other choices? Yes, we would. We would think, well, why not fire? That would be one. Could have burned the earth. But he didn't. He chose water. It is the only consequence that comports with the conditions. Omniscience makes that or demands that uh, be the the case. Asphyxiation by means of drowning. The breath aspect, again, is emphasized. It's prominent, as is the water. And that... That makes us reflect on Genesis 2-7 and Genesis 1-24. Obviously, God could have instantly removed the soul, instantaneously taken the soul from every living soul, couldn't he? He could have separated the soul from the body. If he did that, then that, that changes the control system and the body would shut down. He could shut down the cardiovascular system. That's a physical process. He could have, because he, Jesus Christ, God, is the one who separates the body from the soul and reunites it or reestablishes the body and the soul in resurrection. That's what Christ says he does. So he could instantly do that. He didn't. He used water to suffocate, asphyxiate. Ask why? covers the earth in water, and breath is taken by water. Ask why this way? And again, noatic animals cause, causes many questions. Ecological sorting, for example. When you get into these bone beds, you're going you're gonna to go into, you're going to address or confront ecological sorting. You'll become expert, I hope. How many were killed? Well, let's go read really fast Revelation 20.13. Really fast is a relative term. Then I saw, this is verse 11, Then I saw a great white throne, and him who sat on it, from whose face the earth and the heavens fled away, and there was found no place for them. And I saw the dead, small and great, standing before God, and books were opened, and another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged according to their works by the things which were written in the books, as God defines dead. Who are these? These are the dead, as God defines, not the living. The sea gave up the dead who were in it. How many? When did they get in the sea? Are these sailors? Are these part of the Noadic flood? The sea gave up the dead who were in it, and death and Hades delivered up the dead who were in them. Now that's interesting, isn't it? What's the difference between the sea and death and Hades? Who's in the sea and who's in death in Hades? Why are some in the sea and some in death in Hades? When he says the sea gave up the dead, is that humanity? Or is that animals? 
So my whole point is, is there are lots of questions about Noah and the animals that were gathered to him. Certainly, I could wipe out the entire lecture time on this subject today. I've already done a lot of damage that direction. This is the antediluvian garden and the post-flood garden. Where, where is the garden? What happened to the garden? I had ob- occupants in the garden, I think. I, as you know, I'm beginning to make that case. Adam and Eve were driven from the garden, but did that mean the animals were also driven? Or did they stay behind? And if they stayed behind, could you access them? No, you couldn't. That garden was protected completely. How did God do that? So do I have animals in the garden after Adam and Eve were driven out? And again, I could easily delve into this and just burn up all the time. But uh, I'm not going to do that. I'll do it hopefully in the weeks to come. I'll intersperse it when I can, interject it when I can. But instead, we're going to go a different direction today. This is just something that I wanted you to know about because it's coming. I have access, protected animals in the garden. Why did God do that if my position there is correct? What's coming? He would know. He's omniscient. He's outside of time. Now, on that subject, something's pretty extraordinary. Joel and Apostle John have this symmetry, especially in regard to the first two woes of Revelation 9. The abyss, if you wish to call that, woe number one, that's a 150-day suspension of physical death, and these creatures that come out of the abyss. Woe two, woe, woe two, is the ending of that abeyance of death, and this, another group coming out of the Euphrates, buried beneath the pre-flood Euphrates, which takes makes you understand why I sent you into the noatic animals. And they are killing a third of humanity as opposed to uh, a suspension of death. I have death everywhere now, the worldwide death. Murder. Worldwide murder. By these that came out of underneath the Euphrates. What did I have in Genesis 6? Worldwide murder. Continual evil. I have it again in Revelation 9. And at the end of that, the survivors of all of that refuse to repent. That is an aspect that is a characteristic of the second woe that I think dominates the second woe. The fact that they refuse to repent. And you see, John and Joel are symbiotically merged. By that I mean both were allowed to see the same future event, the same period of time, if you will. They both saw the same thing from the future. And they wrote about it. They shared something that is beyond profound and not restricted to what they saw, but also how it was that they were, they saw it. What was the process that God used to get them to see it? John was transported, the scriptures um, pretty much infer, Revelation 1.10 and 4.2. Joel is not similarly described. 
And his process, it leaves his process to how he saw the tribulation uh, less resolved. Both might have had the same experience. In other words, God may have done the same thing to both of them. We really don't know for sure. And they both may have seen each other. Do you ever consider that? They saw the same thing. Did they see the same thing at the same time? Were they simultaneous or contemporary, side by side? A logical defense of that can easily be proffered. After all, each was given a window into a future age. That's an incredible experience. Would he have put them together? That would be an amazing thing, wouldn't it? They saw that future age that is immediately subsequent to the end of the age of the Gentiles. So they saw what is about to happen when the age of the Gentiles ends. We may be the last generation of the age of the Gentiles. Keep watch over Israel and Iran. John clearly, I believe, I'll make the case, was physically present Joel, maybe, we'll see. But Joel's with a vision that he saw may have incorporated John's vantage position. In any event, two men, two prophets, given the same piece of future time, naturally brings implications. And some might call what I'm about to do, the subject that's coming, fun. Some of you will not. It's okay. I'm used to it. At a minimum, this subject... This discussion is one on the nature of time itself. And as everyone is aware, our authors and Hollywood have attempted to monetize the attributes of time. You see it all the time. That's a joke. Thank you for saying ha. Those of you on the Internet who who suggest that I am... Uh, compensating the laughter in this audience is, you're absolutely right. It's exactly how I know it. Otherwise, I'd get none, <laughs> as you have concluded many times. I about fell over on this thing twice now. <clears throat> Where was I? Hollywood. Very small few have done justice They just do not approach this subject of time intelligently. Let's just lay it out there. They put the dumb in dumb. If you're watching something that Hollywood has done, contributed, manufactured, presented, that is in any way talking about the subject of time, expect it to be stupid. You will not be disappointed. You won't be shocked to know. You also won't be shocked to know that the idiots of Hollywood. I'm sorry if I've offended you in Hollywood. The idiots that populate Hollywood have an imbecilic comprehension of the properties of time. That is not a general statement. That is a specific, accurate statement. I think it's precise. I submit that it's precise. It might seem overly harsh and disrespectful to the denizens that comprise the entertainment industries, but I challenge you to find something that they have done with respect to the subject of time that is 
comprehensive and thoughtful. Good luck. Don't try to find it on television. Thoughtlessness is normalcy in Hollywood, so expect it every time. Again, that's what you will find, so don't be surprised. I present as evidence the laws of physics as, de- as depicted in the movie series Fast and Furious 27, or whatever they call that. So, it's hard not to, 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 I don't even know how to describe these kinds of things. And your children watch this. And if they do, they immediately come out of the movie stupid. And you're now in the stupid uh, removal business. And you need to know it. It's important that you know it. Fast and Furious 41 or whatever the nonsense is, it's titled that way. If the elementary schools were successfully uh, teaching science principles and they are not, the audience for this tripe would laugh derisively and boo loudly in unison. But that doesn't happen here. They actually watch this and think that this is viable. The response is not what it should be if we were if there was an educated audience and, and that and that of course brings the sociological aspect or the sociological impact or the sociological evidences before us the very fact that there exists an audience for idiocy raises obvious considerations who, who is the greater moron i guess is what i'm asking you the producer of the stupidity or the consumer of it. And now the fact that somebody says that I can produce something this stupid and it will be, I will be paid for it. Uh, that is a, a P.T. Barnum on steroids. And as you know, I blame the entertainment media for ice buckets and eating laundry soap. I think if I were to trace the source of that nonsense, I would find it to be Hollywood. Burying society in asininity will effectuate, will induce, will will generate idiots every time. And that is what they have done to our culture. They have buried us in immorality combined with stupidity. And they have created this grotesque culture that is marinated our children and then when you bring in the school system that is failing horribly can I say the school system is failing horribly I have taught in it I know how bad it is many times in my life I have been challenged now I'm going to date myself what did they say in my time they said I dare you or double dare, right? Okay, that makes me 150 years old, I know. I look it. That was the phrase of my era as a child, the 1950s and the 1960s. Yes, I am this old. And I learned really quickly not to do that because I saw the aftermath of the ones that did. I dare you to jump off the roof onto the, onto the driveway. I would go, why? 
That did not seem to be intelligent to me, and, and but there was a lot of pressure as a child to do that, and I finally uh, had a response. I just told him that, yeah, yeah, you have really indeed double dared me. That's fantastic. Continue to do it. I find it amusing. But I'm not participating. What made me like that, I don't know. Just, I didn't wish to have broken ankles. I saw a, a man who presented himself as a holy man of God. It is on one of the things on the Internet. And it's from the East, the Orient. And he told everyone that God was so powerful in his life that he could walk across an alligator-infested river. Did you see this? And those alligators would not touch him. It's no different than the snake handlers you see in this country. How did it go for him? He was eaten within five feet. Now, that's really, really... I don't know what to say. It is sad that he was so delusional that he thought that would happen. But he's not alone. The church is, is infested with this kind of thinking, he's, even in this country, especially in this country. It did, however, provide a terrific lesson for the ones who were watching him. And so in that respect, it had some value. You won't forget that lesson. Anyway, I digress. Let's ask a few questions about time travel. Because that's where we are now. We are going to ask some simple questions of Hollywood. Should be fun. And the question will be, whoops. Time travel. Because as you know... That is a common theme, right? Very popular. First, is it possible, let's just ask this, is it possible for you, for me, for a human being to travel through time? Well, we just talked about Joel and John, but how about you? What is required to travel through time? Well, let's try to define the terms. We should define the terms. Time travel. Is it having possessing the ability to leave time and re-enter time at will. Is that time travel? So here is the arrow of time, and here we are. Can I leave me, my current time, and go there? Ahead of time, if you will. The ability to leave time and re-enter time at will. Is that time travel? Is that a definition that you would choose? How about another choice? Moving oneself forward through time, staying inside of time, but being able to move through it at an accelerated rate that is significantly in excess to the speed of time so that I can outrace time and stop in a location. How about this? The manipulation of time. The power to bring time to a complete stop. Would, that, would, would you consider that a good definition of time travel? Or to reverse time, bringing the future back into the past. Or the converse, the past into the future. 
Now, the agenda-driven, ultra-political film industry, and if you do not know that the film industry is completely consumed by a political mindset, then uh, you are a sheep being shorn. The agenda-driven, ultra-political film industry usually repeats over and over and over and over again the exact same scenarios. Now, why do you suppose they do that? There's a phone, and it is not for me. It could be the pizza delivery guy trying to find us. I doubt it. Unfortunately. Why do they do the same thing? They do it because, first off, to thoughtfully evaluate the existence of time or the origin of time. That, of course, would, the creation of time, that requires that you're alert. That requires discernment and that requires reasoning. And all of which affects profitability. That's exactly the same thing that affects the church in this Laodicean age that we're in. Isn't that true? If I have anything that is complex, boy, oh boy, that's going to drive people out. And it does. There's no question about it. So note the similarities to the Laodicean church of our time. All of those characteristics that I listed are incompatible with automobiles that leap from building to building. Oh, they're calling again. They're trying every phone they can. I'll wait to see if it's for me. It could be. Apparently it isn't. (laughs) Darn. Okay, I'm still digressing, aren't I? I haven't stopped digressing. Okay. The usual format is the so-called is to take the so-called time traveler and he's, he or she is going to transition to a distant time period, typically, in attempt to change some, uh, some event or the outcome of some event, um, either past or future. And because originality is completely absent in these kinds of things, especially currently, the inevitable predictable meeting that the sojourner has occurs, and that is with himself or herself. In other words, someone travels from this time to this time where they meet up with themselves. Have you seen those? An interaction, in other words, interaction now will occur, and a conversation ensues between the same person in in the same time. Have I explained that very well? You look at me like I'm... Well, you always look at me this way. But is it worse than usual? Where where I'm not getting through at all? Somebody goes forward or backward in time where they find themselves in that time and they talk to themselves. Does that make sense? I hope I'm doing better with it. So there's this conversation, this interaction between himself or herself. So let's just stop, just stop right there and let's ask some questions. Is it possible to talk to yourself? Well, yes, it is. I just call it pre-onset dementia. I'm at risk. Both of my parents had genetic markers. It's going to get bad. 
But I'm, I halfway enjoy it. I, I have a tendency to make myself laugh. I'm the only one. But seriously, this is what I call the Swinburne two-brain thought experiment. What you're watching in this time travel is these scenarios is somebody now confronts themselves. And this is, and Swinburne didn't originate it, but he brought it to my attention, so I pretty much named it after him. I hope he likes that. But it's the Swinburne two-brain experiment, as I describe it, or as I call it. And Swinburne did extrapolate it and did... uh, Raise it in one or two of his books. He's not a Christian, but he recognized immediately what, what's going on in the physical body. I have a mind and I have a body. So imagine now I have the same person talking to himself in the same room or herself in the same room at the same time. And Swinburne, as you might remember, proposed removing a hemisphere from a living person Taking, for example, the left or right, you get to choose whichever. Do you want to be an artist or a mathematician? So pick the one you don't want to be. Take that hemisphere out and put it into a living body that has no brain in it. Now, again, it's a thought experiment, so disregard the medical difficulties. Concede the the hypothetical. So I'm implanting a removed brain hemisphere into a vacated skull of a living body, and the brain then begins to interact with that body. So I have... A person who has one hemisphere here and a person that has one hemisphere there. Two different bodies, same brain. And Swinburne, of course, um, his whole point is that he asked, in which body is the person? Remember that? The point of the experiment, the thought experiment, is to illustrate that consciousness is not transferable by a physical process. That was his point. The brain is just simply a physical device. It does not contain your consciousness. Your consciousness is not containable by a physical device. The body is a physical device. Consciousness is non-physical. And again, let me repeat it a little bit if you haven't heard it before. If I took my arm and attached it to somebody who had another arm, would my personhood transfer to the other person because he transferred the arm or the ear or the nose or the appendix or the heart or the foot? No one would want my foot. So that's not, that's not, I can't be compensated for that. Or my eyesight, for that matter. Where am I? point of it is, is that consciousness unaffected by physical processes, as you know, death is a physical process. And that's what Swinburne was proving. Your personhood is not affected by physical death of the body. So the same question applies. If a person is confronted or if a person confronts with a future or past self, what's the obvious question immediately? Which one has the consciousness? Which one has the purposehood or the personhood? Which one is the real one? Are they both the real one? Does this make any sense that someone can go through time and find themselves and talk to themselves Again, which one has the consciousness? Whenever you find yourself watching these kinds of things, ask, what am I conceding intellectually here? 
Again, let me repeat this. Hollywood attacks time this way on purpose because they're dumb, but also because they like being dumb. And they like what is happening to people who understand time. If I can get you to concede that that's possible, then what have I done? I want you to consider that. Is it possible for one's consciousness to exist in two distinct bodies at the exact same time? Oh, no. Schrodinger's cat. Not again. I should have my box. Run for your lives. Superposed state is what we're here, isn't it? I have somebody who has put themselves in a superpositioned state. He's in two places at the same time. Now, some might object. They would suggest that it is one consciousness, the same consciousness and the same body, somehow existing in concurrent separate states. Well, logically work that through. Let's do what I always do, which is to explode the supposition. See, if something is, I'm going to make this absurd now. If I can take your conjecture and extend it to the absurdities, and it's still viable at the absurd extremes, then it's possible that it is viable in the middle or the mean. So let's go and explode it in both directions. If it is possible to have myself and myself in the same room talking to myself about myself, because that's what we would do. We would talk about myself. It's all about me. And this is the most recent example. I won't tell you the name of the program, but you can figure it out because you know what kind of nonsense I watch. And I watch it because it makes me laugh. I want to know, has Hollywood got any dumber? And the answer is always yes. If, if it is possible to have myself and myself in the same room talking to myself about myself, then the most obvious of the obvious question is how big is the room? I need a big room. Why do I need a big room? That's another way of asking, how many me's can meet me? We've always, there's only, only two me's in all the movies or all the TV programs. Now, that's not what I'm going to do. I'm going to have as many me's as I can get. I'm in time. How many me's are here? Let's say one me. How many me's are here? Another me. How about here? How about here? How many me's can I accumulate? Can I go backward to get me's? Can I go forward to get me's? How big is the room? If two is possible, if I can see two of me, right? How come I can't see three of me? Because I can see three of me, can't I? I can find a time. How about ten of me? I can get an army of myself. I can have millions of me's in a stadium. How glorious this is world domination. This is how it's done. You see, the, the scenario that you always watch on these shows is that it's many years apart, right? I'm here and I've got to go a hundred years and I find me. And I'm a hundred years old except I still look like 20 because the actor's 20. Never mind. But I find me in the past, 20 years behind or a hundred years in the future, whatever it is. Well, why don't, uh, why is the scenario always many years apart? How about days apart? I'm going to find me in 15 minutes. Will I be wearing the same clothes? Yes. I get in my machine, I go 15 minutes into the future, and there is me. Hi, me. 
And I got two of me side by side, right? What do we do? We both get in the machine. I got a big machine and a big room. See, how about days apart? So again, if me from now goes forward in time to talk to me in an hour and me from, and me from that go to, to tomorrow and talk to me tomorrow, and we arrange a meeting. Can I take me from an hour into my mechanical time machine device and meet up with me from tomorrow and drop the other two me's into a time period of my choosing that has, of course, another myself? See what's happening? It is absurd. How do they make money on this? Well, they do. They make lots of money. Anyway, how many of how many of uh, how many me's have there been so far? I hope you kept count. And in which one of them is my personhood? All of them? Does that make sense? Where's the consciousness? Just asking. As an aside, how much of my consciousness changes in a day or an hour or a minute? Because my consciousness, your consciousness, is constantly changing. So, how much information is different? How much different information did I accumulate just talking to you right now from where I was before I talked to you? How much information did you accumulate? Don't answer that. Okay? Don't, most of you would shout out, none. <laughs> but again, both physically and mentally, I'm accumulating information. That is my consciousness, isn't it? The physical properties change and the mental property changes. How much? Now, I'm going to delve into heresy. Here is Christ. Here is heresy. I'm going to present it as heresy. Then hopefully you'll see it. A blasphemy. Uh, It is absolutely an insult to Christ, what I'm going to say. But uh, I hope he'll forgive me. I know he will. Can Christ, who is God, enter into time at the crucifixion and cut himself down from the cross? That's heresy. Why is that heresy? Because I have described Christ as what? Finite. He's omnipotent, omniscient, omnipresent, omnibenevolent. He is omnipresent. So, to say, can Christ enter time? Boy, I have an infinite being who is the creator of time. Time is not, he, time is inside of him. But now just take, take Christ out of it and put humanity in it. And you see the same construct. Obviously, we as Christians, as the ones that know, we're the ones that know that God created time, Genesis 1.1. He began time. He is the one who conceived time. And we're the ones who are supposed to know that God controls time, is outside of time, is in authority over time at all time. We're supposed to know that. And we have been given the truths about time, and we should endeavor to know what those truths are. Can someone who is created and placed inside of time manipulate time? 
What are the constraints of time? Because there are restrictions in time. God put those restrictions in place. By that I mean what is required to escape time? Is it possible to escape time? And if not, why not? Why did he make it impossible if he did? Perhaps a more appropriate question would be, why has God created time? What are all the purposes of time? Because there are many purposes of them. We are inherently aware of the limiting conditions of gravity, for example. Why did God create gravitational forces? What is the totality of the intendment of gravity? And previously I proposed that the existence of time is given to us as evidence of our immortality, as well as the angel's immortality. What else has God included in his creation of time and notice I am insisting that time is a created thing Hollywood does not do that keep that in mind let's try the inverse of that discussion I just did briefly there why include time why did God take timelessness and include time in it he is timeless. I asked a while back, uh, which is bigger, time or infinity? God has appointed times. You know that. Clearly, he has placed great importance on time. Again, what are his purposes? Plural. Is the past inviolable? Or can the past be re-engineered? Can you break through God's creation of time and manipulate it and change it? The past, in my opinion, is entrenched. It cannot be affected. It is inviolate. It is in a state of inviolacy. Inviolacy. And I offer as information, I'm sorry, I offer as evidence information. That's why I brought it up. How much information is in the past? Start figuring out how many pieces of information are in the past. Use your phones. That's why Apple gave them to you, so you can do these kinds of calculations. Can any of that information that is in the past be eliminated? Yes or no? Please answer no. In other words, can it be effectively destroyed? Please again say no. Where is the information that is in the past? Where is the storage facility, in other words? Where does the information that has occurred go? Obviously, we maintain our information, that which pertains or belongs to us. But what of the information that is excluded from the created perception? For example, galactic information. How much galactic information is there? How many trillions of, of galaxies do I have? And how many pieces of material are in each galaxy? That's a lot of information. You don't know about it. You don't see it. Where is it contained? What happens to it? Because it, something changes in the galaxies and the universe every millisecond. The fundamental foundational precept of physics is that information can't be destroyed. Therefore, time travel is not possible. Does that make sense? The past, the past is in a state of inviolacy. God will not allow the past to be altered. So what's the question? 
Why not? He won't. Consider the consequences if it were otherwise. Do that in your spare time. Now, contemplate the future. Is the future subject to indeterminacy, uncertainty? Is it also locked like the past? Is it fixed? Is the future known? Let me ask you that. Is it known? Who can know it? Who knows it? How can it be known? Is knowing the future causing the future? If the future is revealed, what has been proven by the revealing of the future? What does it take to reveal future time? To see future time. And finally, everyone loves finally. To end this for today, mercifully. Define present. You must have a definition of present. What is, what is present? Define it. What is the present? Does the present exist? For whom does it exist? And all of this will lead us eventually to Genesis 3. I know that's not a surprise to anybody, but that's how it goes, right? It's all Genesis 3. Christ constantly refers to Genesis 1 through 3. He did so because of what was confirmed or verified in the events of Genesis 1 through 3. For example, Adam renames the woman Eve. I've asked you a hundred times, why did he name the woman Eve? She had a name, it was woman That's why Christ calls these women woman all the time. He's referring back to Genesis 3, where the woman was called woman. But Adam says, no, I'm renaming her Eve. Why does he do that? Why not Betty? He doesn't do Betty, Martha. He calls her Eve, the mother of all living, or if you will, the first of the living. And that seems to be an error. She should be the first of the dead, as I've said many times. The woman was deceived. She's the first human being to die as God defines death. But he doesn't call her the mother of death. He calls himself the father of death, ultimately, Romans 5. But she, he calls, he, because he's Adam and he's really, really smart and he knows what happened in Genesis 3 and he knows she was deceived and she chose unbelief and she thought God to be the author of evil and she abandoned the truths about God, of God, yet she is the mother of all living, the example, if you will, of, the li- of those who live. That's who she is and that's why Adam does this because he knows it. And how is this so? And I said last lecture, I think, that the woman does something extraordinary, and so does Adam. The two of them testify against Satan. The first time anybody testifies against Satan, and there's two of them, and she accuses Satan of lying, and she accuses him of being a murderer at his trial. And because of that, he's condemned to death, everlasting death, as God defines it incorporated in her testimony, that is is something that is inseparable from her accusation against Satan. The fact that she confesses what she did and who, who deceived her. That is repentance. She is the first one in the Bible to repent of something. Repentance is in her confession. You see, confession and repentance, they are stuck. 
together. She repents of her unbelief of God. She didn't believe God was good. And she repents of that. She believes God is good. She believes God is perfect, pure, without sin. So you have to say, what exactly does she now believe about God that she did not believe when she was tempted and deceived and murdered by the, by the serpent? And Adam renames her the mother of all the living. By the way, God allows, would God allow Eve's fall and her repentance to be changed by a time traveler? Because ultimately, if somebody could travel through time, what would they do? They would try to do what? They would go find themselves? No. They would try to change something. Who would be the first? If it's possible to travel through time, who would be doing it? I mean, think about it. Who is the most powerful, intelligent creature ever created? Can he travel through time? No, he can't. Why not? Information cannot be destroyed. What doctrine is that? There's timeless security here, right? Eve repented of her unbelief. And for that, she is the first of all who repent of their unbelief. That's why she's the mother of the living. And she has timeless, eternal security. Salvation is not subject to time. That's important to know. Hollywood tells you otherwise. And they are winning because the church is dumber than they are. That is a shame. But I digress. Would the musician, we still got two musicians to come forward. Here you come. Three. Holy mackerel. Honey child. One is slower than the rest and he's okay. He's older. He's had more time to degrade himself, and he's been very effective at it. He's doing a great job. Okay, that's it.